This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's Saturday. It's the Saturday show, which brings me to talk of penguins. You know, just the other day, they found four more colonies of emperor penguins, bringing the total number of known nesting sites to 66. Yeah, 66 that we know about. This means the overall population of emperor penguins. Well, what do you think? What do you think? 66 sites? How many per site? It's quite a lot, I guess, unless you're a penguin and a penguin enthusiast who wants there to be billions of penguins. But 550,000 penguins have been tallied. They use satellites. They identify guano from space. And that brings me to one of the best interviews we ever did, is what I promise on the Saturday show. One from the best of the week and one from the best of the vaults. And our vaulted, our vaunted vaulted interview this week is with a penguin researcher. I once dubbed her, it's still true, the GIST's official penguin expert, the researcher Michelle LaRue, who talks about how she does a penguin census. She also came on in 2017 to talk about news about the nettlesome penguin, perhaps not the emperor, bit of macaroni penguin talk occurs. I hope you like that penguin interview. And then earlier in the week, I gave it to you straight. Sorry if you're a beloved subscriber to the LA Times, and by which I mean they beloved you because you were the one subscriber. I did say that while it's pretty bad for the individuals involved, that over 100 journalists lost their jobs, and while it's bad in a more abstract sense for democracy, the LA Times wasn't a great newspaper. There I said it. And I guess I'll say it again on this, this Saturday show. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Penguins. There are a lot of them, especially if you're in or around the South Pole. But the question is, just how many? And is this one the one we saw like eight minutes ago? It is true what they say about penguins. They kind of look alike. So, in an endeavor 
to get a good head count or perhaps beak count on these waddling animals. We have used science, we have used human engineering, and we have used Michelle LaRue, who is the GIST's in-house penguin counter, and she is going to update us on the latest penguin counts that have been going on around the world. Michelle LaRue is also a research ecologist at the University of Minnesota. Hello, Michelle. How are you? Hello, I'm well. How are you? I'm well. So I remember a few years ago you were on because there was a, uh, a penguin count, the first penguin count, and you were at least one of the ones doing the counts. Uh, and I think back then, this was 2014, you found almost 4 million of which type of penguin? The Adelie penguin. The Adelie penguin. And why don't you tell us how you counted these penguins? Yeah, so in 2014, that uh, census was based on high-resolution satellite imagery. So basically what uh, Heather Lynch and I did was calculate the area of of the bird's guano stain so that when they nest, they kind of live in their own filth. And we can use that information, though, to figure out how many birds there are. So that's basically what we did is we used this kind of an indirect way of figuring out how many birds there are. So in other words... The larger the guano stain, the more birds there are likely to be there. And so that's what that census in 2014 was based on. And, for is, the there, and is there a scientific consensus on the poop per penguin ratio? I mean, what if you had some uh, spectacularly irregular penguins? Your count could be off. Yeah, that's right. That, it could be. Um, but we, we did develop the model based on ground truthing data. So in other words, we were able to take images of these guano stains that happened to overlap at the exact same time where we knew exactly or pretty well how many breeding pairs there were um, at the exact same time. So we were able to, to um, make those connections pretty well. And so then we were able to extrapolate around the rest of the continent. Right. So I got to say, back then around 2014, when you had the number uh, 3.79 million breeding pairs, which were more than a million them was counted 20 years ago, I believed you. And then some new numbers came out and you shook my world upside down. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> what are the new numbers? Yeah, so the new number um, is based off uh, some colleagues of mine um, out of Australia and a couple other locations, and they are um, updating it. And it's so what we now know is it's not just the number of breeding pairs. Um, my colleagues were able to include the also the number of non-breeders, wow. and that's a kind of a big deal because we we know that obviously there's lots of other animals that are out there and they're doing things called skip breeding, or they're just kind of hanging out and not breeding. And it turns out there's more of those kinds of animals than there are the kind that come back and breed every single year. And so when we were looking at it from high resolution imagery, we knew that the number that we were giving was the number of breeding animals. Okay. So the new your estimate of just the breeding pairs was, uh, like I said, almost 4 million, but now they're saying it's around 15 million of these penguins throughout the world. I think the estimate for breeding pairs that they have now is somewhere around, I don't know, four, like five million breeding pairs roughly, but they were able to add in the number of non-breeders and that's how they come to the roughly 10 million individuals and potentially up to 14 to 16 million individuals mm. in the entire Southern Ocean. So it's, um, it's adding to you know, science always works on top of, you know, previous research, right? So they're able to expand and, and add to our knowledge. Yeah. And penguins always work on top of previous guano. And so that exactly. leads me to, it's amazing. Why does it matter? Other than I love uh, counting penguins. 
penguins are a really important um, part of the Southern Ocean ecosystem for a couple of reasons. Um, Adelie penguins, first and foremost, I think are, they're really the bellwethers of climate change because they have this kind of what it, what I call um, kind of a Goldilocks uh, relationship to sea ice. If the sea ice, the fast ice extent is too far out, that's not good. If it's too far in, that's not good. And that has to do with their primary prey, which is krill. So they need krill uh, to eat. And so, and krill need the sea ice. So there's that relationship there. But then in addition to that, we actually fish for krill in the Southern Ocean. And so that's the other reason that knowing how Adelie penguins are doing is important is because we fish for the same prey that that they do. And so to make sure that we're not taking too much, too many resources out of the Southern Ocean, it's it's a good thing to know how many Adelie penguins there are. Is a reason. So if they're a bellwether and if they're thriving, it might be tempting to say, okay, let's not be totally ignorant and say there's no such thing as global warming or it's not as bad as we thought. But, you know, maybe this is the first non-dire global warming referendum that I've heard in a while. However, as I thought, is that true? I remembered, wait a minute, maybe it could just be that their predators have been dying off also. Well, so... At, at the moment right now, what I'm what I'm thinking is we just now know more, which is always a good thing. So I, I um, am hesitant to make a leap to say whether it's good or bad necessarily, because there's a couple things that could be going on. So now that we know more and there are likely to be far more Adelie penguins in the Southern Ocean than we previously thought, that means that they are eating far more krill than we previously thought. And so given the catch limits um, for taking krill out of the Southern Ocean are based uh, largely on lots of different science, but one of which is understanding how many Adelie penguins there are. Uh, It's possible that we may need to take a look at that again. Uh, but then again, on the other hand, yeah, I mean, perhaps uh, perhaps there are more Adelie penguins and maybe they're doing better than we thought. But I'm, I'm hesitant to say for sure one way or the other at the moment. Have you had much personal contact with Adelie penguins? I have. <laughs> are they nasty little birds? <laughs> um, the way I describe them, they're, they're really sassy and they have got some attitude, uh-huh. I think. If, if I'm, if I'm going to anthropomorphize, that would be the way I would do it. Right. Maybe they just think we're totally lame and not at all rambunctious. Could you, uh, I mean, everyone wants one as a pet. And I saw this movie called Mr. Popper's Penguins, which was, I believe, yeah. a National Geographic uh, documentary. That'd yeah. be bad. That'd be a bad idea, right? Yeah, I, I would not recommend an Adelie penguin for uh, a pet. Uh, first and foremost, they smell. I mean, that's just a, you know, a not fun thing. Uh, but yeah, they, I don't know. They, like I said, they kind of just have this attitude. They don't, they're not particularly impressed with, with people every time I've ever come across them. They're, I've I always just felt that they were very unimpressed with my presence. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're not they're not terribly friendly, or they're just kind of you know, they're sassy. Dr. Michelle Larue, research ecologist at the University of Minnesota, our official just uh, penguin counter. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. And now the spiel. The LA Times laid off 115 employees yesterday. Now, I'm not here to um, piss on anyone's grave, but if it falls on me to crap in the crematorium, 
Well, then it falls on me to do so. It gives me no pleasure. Journalism in general needs to be supported. And I support it more than the average American. In fact, I support it more than 10 average Americans. The average American does not subscribe to a daily newspaper. I subscribe to the LA Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Sacramento Bee, the San Francisco Chronicle, and onto periodicals, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, and also about 12 substacks. A friend sneaked me her economist password the other day. I'm not even including that. I got I to gotta also tell you, yesterday, I hit the paywall at the Boston Globe and thought, wow, it's only a dollar for 20 weeks. What I'm saying is, people, I have a problem. I need help. But you know who else has a problem? The LA Times does. It's not all about me. They don't have a problem with my subscription, although I am questioning it. It is all their other subscribers and non-subscribers. Mostly their problem is macro trends and how news aggregators, the huge tech companies, just rip off newspaper content, but also fundamental advertising efficiencies. Efficiency is good, except when it comes to decimating the news business because no one really needs want ads in a newspaper where 90% of the people, well, 99% of the people aren't even looking for your want ad. And how want ads used to work is they were the cash crop that funded city hall coverage and everything else, everything that people didn't know they wanted to read. And maybe, let's be honest, didn't want to read. But here's the one part no one wants to say today. The LA Times is not an excellent newspaper. It is a competent newspaper. It won a Pulitzer recently. It certainly has some good reporters. I'm not saying it doesn't. But of all the newspapers I subscribe to, the Philadelphia Inquirer is the worst. It's the least essential to me in my life. But the LA Times is second to last. And if you're saying, well, you're in New York, there in LA, of course it would be. No, the Sacramento Bee tells things much more straightforwardly. I like that as a better paper. And the San Francisco Chronicle has one or two really essential columnists who make the whole thing worthwhile. I'm kind of looking forward to unsubscribing, certainly to the Inquirer when my dollar for the price of entry is do, and maybe even to the LA Times. Most critiques of the LA Times are very nasty from people saying, learn to code, or right-wingers assailing the paper for being liberal. But LA is a liberal city. It's in a liberal state. It's not a problem that their editorial pages have a leftward bent, a bit of a problem that their news pages do. It would be a harder lift if at least the editorials didn't service their community. It's just that the LA Times is unsurprising. It's unsurprising that it's progressive, but it's also unsurprisingly everything else. There are no Katie Weavers at the LA Times to do a story on glitter. There are no Heather Knights or Emily Hoovins, who took over Knight's column at the San Francisco Chronicle, who can call bullshit on the insular talking points, yes, quite often the liberal talking points of city councilors and government officials. The Pulitzer that the LA Times won was for uncovering tape of Latino city councilors talking trash in racially offensive ways about black politicians. But you know what? I went elsewhere. I went to local public radio and Madeline Brand's show, Press Play, for the best coverage, the most honest coverage of the underlying dynamics there. I personally watched hours-long council meetings, which were just insane. They were just meltdowns. I brought them to you because that was interesting. The LA Times did not focus on the things that were most interesting. I think they adhered to a tone that was scared, was afraid of offending constituencies. They just didn't feel compelled to make you take notice about what was going on. I also think they were quite frightened of ever offering any sort of defense for the Latino city councilors. But 
you know, my understanding of it from other sources is that Latinos are grossly underrepresented in Los Angeles compared to their black counterparts. And that was an angle that the LA Times, I don't know, just seemed a little scared off of. The LA Times op-ed page used to feature Megan Daum, Virginia Heffernan, Jonah Goldberg, left, right, center there. Today, as we speak, I subscribe to Virginia's Substack. I listen to Megan's Special Place in Hell podcast, her unspeakable podcast. I listen to Jonah on two different podcasts he does, The Remnant and Glop. I never engage with the LA Times op-eds. I don't really hate read them. I kind of despair read them. They're boring. They're predictable. They kind of grind away at the horrors of the world or the worries of our moment. There's a bludgeoning way of writing and framing issues where all the spark is not just denuded, but treated as if we're wrong to want it, given the dire, dire stakes of everything in the world. L.A. happens to be a very quirky town. None of that comes across in the L.A. Times, not as much as it should. There seems to be no joy taken in the civic and the municipal or just the social experience there. The paper's a slog. Some of the writing is good, very good even. I like their Rust coverage. Steve Lopez is an exception to everything I'm saying. But, you know, part of quirkiness and being interesting is crime, and they are really afraid to offend anyone by talking about crime. LA's a noir city. LA Confidential was real and got a lot of people paying attention. The LA Times runs away from that. They even had a huge discussion if they should use the word looting anywhere in coverage, lest it offend or castigate. I know there are so many talented reporters and editors being jettisoned. I feel very bad for them. I also know the average Los Angelino isn't going to be better informed tomorrow, but how much have they lost? What was the LA Times's case that it's an essential institution? Do LA news consumers feel that they just can't get by without the LA Times? That the LA Times will report on issues in a deeper or different or more compelling way than they could get in a lot of other places? If the LA Times were a person you met at a party, Would that person pull you over with their sparkling wit? Would they maybe be a repository of fascinating information? I like that kind of person at a party. Or would you, and I think this would happen, the LA Times personified, you'd move away after a couple minutes after just hearing uh, stuff about, I don't know, the Caltrans pension shortfalls. Here, I'll quote Oliver Darcy, a CNN media columnist covering the LA Times staff cuts. The cuts have come at a horrendous time as anti-democratic candidates look to seize power in election contests from coast to coast. Newsrooms are shrinking and simply trying to stay afloat. Well, the LA Times, even when well-staffed or much better staffed than they are now, didn't do much to prevent the anti-democratic candidates from winning the votes of those outside their coverage area insofar as The LA Times has that kind of impact, creating a well-informed citizenry. Let's look at California itself. The Senate there is 32 to 8 Democrat. I guess Darcy would say that's the LA Times doing its job, but people in California aren't particularly happy. 55% said the state's going in the wrong direction. On the one hand, that's better than 71% wrong track nationally, but... You know, nationally, those statistics are affected by the fact that, oh, my God, I got to put up with these idiots from Alabama or these idiots from Rhode Island who are thwarting what my views of the direction of the country should be. Also, I looked at New York. 
right? We have the New York Times here. That's a dominant newspaper. If uh, anyone wants to be well-informed by the New York Times, pick one up at their local newsstand or online for a fairly affordable price. And and the well-resourced, well-funded, lots of people in the newsroom, New York Times is not creating an overall better situation in terms of the electorate. The same amount of people or same percent of people say New York's on a wrong track as say California's on a wrong track. I don't believe that a newspaper has that much impact. I do believe that a well-informed citizenry is important. But to get that, you got to make them want to read the paper. And you got to make them convinced that the paper is indeed a great source of information. But here's another way to look at that terrible time for cuts argument that Darcy was putting forth. I ask you, when is a good time for cuts? That alone, I could just leave that there, but let's get into it a little more. By the logic, right, it was that terrible time. We have anti-Democrats looking to win elections. So by that logic, presumably a good time when we could best afford newspaper cuts as a country would be when there is no threat of voters screwing it all up and ignorantly electing someone anti-Democratic. And by the logic of, well, how do we get to that point? It's a well-informed citizenry who reads their newspapers. Well, that wouldn't be a good time for cuts at all because the citizenry would be reading the newspaper. So we can afford cuts when newspapers are strong, which is when we wouldn't have cuts to newspapers. And when we can't afford cuts to newspapers is when they're weak because people don't want to read the newspaper. It's kind of silly. It's typical of the payons to the cuts that the LA Times and also Time Magazine to Washington Post to a lesser extent a couple weeks ago, the payons that they received. Mostly it's just in general, pro-newspaper, pro-knowing things, pro-journalism. I haven't seen too many LA Times pieces, reported pieces, columns of people who are being fired, being passed around, saying, this is what we're giving up. Democracy has not yet died in darkness, but the dusk is setting in. That's the general tone of why we should bemoan the LA Times cuts. These crepuscular times lend themselves to hand-wringing. Crepuscular times, by the way, niche name for an afternoon daily. But the hand-wringers, they want to make a great case for the survival of the newspaper, say, read this, read this guy, read this woman, and she just got fired. Haven't seen that one yet. Newspapers are a challenging business. They depend on the largesse of billionaires to subsidize them. Americans aren't better informed, but they have a lot more data, a lot more quote-unquote information, really easy to get. In fact, hard to ignore. This makes the average person in a position where it's very hard to argue them into the utility of a local daily newspaper, certainly not at a price that would support the salaries and benefits of hundreds of journalists. I have no surefire answer to any of this, but I can offer one piece of advice. Newspapers have to take their best shot. They have to be essential. They have to not be afraid to be useful and interesting to the reader, the actual reader, not each other. The potential subscriber who doesn't know how much they would love the product, but upon encountering the product, realizes, ooh, I can't live without that. And that's it for the show. Joel Patterson, Corey Wara, they are the quaint mallards. One is the senior producer and one is the producer of The Gist. Thank you, quaint mallards. And thank you all. I'll talk to you Monday.